So I'll just chant a little blessing. Uh, some of you may know it. It's just homage to the triple gem. responsibility bringing peace to a troubled world what a troubled world we live in when family members have to be murdered going about the most benevolent activities possible teaching in a university this is something that happens in the United States of course now here too and uh, it's very troubling those of you that have children in a university or work in a university yourself um, and here we are sitting in the school board room so uh, it, re it really resonates it hits close to home doesn't it but right intention right intention for all of us, even if we are the most peaceful, or we think we're the most peaceful person around, is really, it's the second limb of the Eightfold Path. All of you know that the first is right view. So right view means right understanding. It's not enough to stop there. Without right view, we can't really begin the practice of making peace with ourselves, with life, with the conditions that we face, with our minds. But once we have right understanding, and not only once we have right understanding, but at every point in the Eightfold Path, right intention is essential. And it's, it's pretty easy for new practitioners or for old yogis anybody to fall into wrong intention we have to be so mindful continuously mindful not just when we're sitting and meditating and watching our breath there are three main kinds of right intention what's the first one can anyone guess 
usually we have to, in order to develop right intention, we have to let go of wrong intention if it's not there already. So assuming that we're not all perfect, at some moments in our day we might have an unskillful intention. So the most important thing is to give it up. Even if it's a really, like a righteous anger, or we feel completely justified about a resentment or an attitude that we have, someone has hurt us or said something that is unpleasant or painful, the easiest thing is to have an intention to, well, I'll show them, or this is, of course, ego-based, any wrong intention, any unskillful movement of the mind comes from ignorance. And until we're completely awakened, we're going to fall into that again and again in hopefully more lightweight wrong intention. Unless um, it's something very tragic, like people might think, oh, that terrible man who killed this innocent teacher and his daughter He should be punished. We should make him suffer for his crime. That also is a kind of unskillful intention. And then that leads us to the second kind of right intention, and that's letting go of ill will, even if it seems reasonable or justifiable. This is a criminal, someone who's done violence to innocent people. We should hate him. That's not the path. The path is to let go of ill will, to renounce ill will, and to cultivate goodwill in the heart. So right intention, skillful intention, involves acts of renunciation at the mental level. Letting go thoughts that are harmful, thoughts that are unskillful, and thoughts that are based in desire, selfish desire. So that immediately brings us to the third right intention, which is harmlessness, not harming anyone. And usually when we act out of selfishness, we might be on the road to hurting someone. There's a very strong connection between these three kinds of intention. The intention to let go unskillful thought and then the kinds of unskillful thought that we want to let go of are thoughts of ill will, thoughts of harming someone, and thoughts that are self-cherishing, that are ego-based, that are ignorant, that, that cause harm, even though we might not be acting violently, but just by holding on to what I want, my view, my needs, my agenda, my opinion, we might be causing harm. And by cherishing ourselves and thinking only of our own well-being, then we're failing to be sensitive to others. Whatever we do to develop right intention, automatically we're letting go of unskillfulness in the mind. And this is not only conducive to peaceful states within us, but it certainly contributes to peace in the world. And the first evidence of that 
is if the mind is peaceful, then our speech will also be peaceful. There's a good chance of it anyway. But that's where we have to practice. You'll notice if you've been meditating for any length of time, or even if you're not a meditator, if you have a, a good intention in your mind, it's very likely that you'll, you'll have a good feeling in your heart. It's quite likely. This is karma. It's karma. Whatever is going on in the mind is going to act itself out. It's going to percolate from consciousness outwards through the sense doors, through speech and action, the way we move, the way we interact with each other. Even if we say nothing, we can be unskillful in our silence. We can look at people with unkind eyes and make a face and slam a door and um, do other things that could appear to be innocent, but there was an intention behind them. And usually this intention is based on some kind of attitude. So when we're able to purify the heart more and more, the ways that we manifest in the world also become purified. That's just the law of karma at work. So then we, we become more and more mindful with the words that we use and the ways that we treat each other. And certainly we wouldn't intentionally hurt anyone, let alone commit acts of violence. So somebody who would go to the extent of killing another human being willfully and then killing themselves would have been either very depraved, certainly out of, disconnected completely, very disturbed, we would think, worthy of compassion too. That's the hard part. I'll, I'll get to that. So speech is one of the big ways that we create karma. I don't think anyone in this room would go and punch someone or, well, I don't know, but probably not. But think about it. If, if somebody walked into this room and threatened us, what would we do? It's easy to think that we were gentle and kind folk and we would never hurt anyone. Even in, in monastic life, we can't even hurt an insect, even if it's biting us. You know, the old saying is, well, this mosquito is just having lunch. <laughs> I remember when I was in Burma, we were doing, you know, the slow, slow walking meditation. And there was a nun there she was walking back and forth. There were lots of insects, lots of mosquitoes. And every once in a while, I'd hear this slap, slapping noise. And I was very shocked. And this perception of seeing a person in robes killing mosquitoes was really hard to digest. I didn't say anything. I was just aware of that. And it's just different ways of of interpreting the practice and dealing with precepts, different levels. But the most important thing is not to look at what other people are doing, just to look at what we're doing. My opinion of her was probably worse than the way she was hitting the mosquito. And when I became aware of that, 
I, I had this real sense of shame that, oh, how mindful was that? You're having an opinion, she's hitting the mosquito, and you're hitting her silently with your opinion. Wrong intention or wrong thinking is a poison. And if we hold it and we don't renounce it, then it will poison us. It's toxic. It's toxic waste. It's nuclear. So it's very important to understand the power of wrong intention. And in the same way, we can understand the power of right intention. Naturally, I do remember because the mindfulness practice when you're in that kind of intense situation, everything that's going on in your mind like blows up in front of you. She didn't know anything. We were in silence, so luckily. <laughs> Otherwise, there may have been a discussion. <laughs> Un unskillful, I don't know. Um, she's a lovely person. <laughs> I, I did get to know her afterwards. But the judging mind can be self-righteous. And that's coming from ego, from cherishing ourselves so much. Well, I don't kill mosquitoes. Therefore, I'm a better man or a better yogi or certainly I'm closer to enlightenment. <laughs> but that is so deluded. Totally, totally deluded. And it, it all blew up in my face, and then I had to go and report this to the Sayato <laughs> and tell him about my unmindful wrong intention towards this. And it's more important, you know, our training is that if you have a wrong intention to someone who's keeping a high level of sila, of precepts, then it's even worse because their virtue is so highly developed. So our mind state, we have to be more and more careful how we hold them in our hearts and to try to bring up a sense of goodness and the good qualities and let go of the toxic waste and not spread it around. It poisons us in a very big way and the sign of the Sangha is to be upheld. And it's very easy for us to be critical, the critical mind. Critical mind means negative thinking, negative usually towards others. So the most important thing, and I realized it at that moment, I remember that, it was such a big teaching for me, is that don't look at what other people are doing. Keep your eyes down, those are the instructions. Keep your eyes down, but I heard the slap. <laughs> And I, I didn't know what it was. So instead of hearing, hearing, I was looking, looking. <laughs> Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. And as soon as we are believing our minds and forming those judgments and opinions and then seeing the other person as doing something wrong, I don't know, she may have just had the most pure-hearted mind and just not understood that particular connection and been so much more mindful than me. We cannot judge what's in anyone else's mind. But I cannot say that 
maybe she was suffering so much she might be allergic to mosquitoes. Could have been a big illness. I think I could say without a doubt that if someone were to kill a human being, like we heard tonight, there's definitely some wrong intention and wrong mindfulness to pull a gun and shoot someone, innocent people. But still, not to judge. We have opinion. We, we can hate the deed. We can hate the action. But we must never hate the person. That's very, very important. Coming back now, we see how the progression goes to thoughts of ill will. Because as soon as we have an opinion, and we don't renounce that, we may think our opinion is right. But we're coming from wrong view, based on the ego. So as soon as we have that wrong view, the next thing we're going to have is ill will because we think that's a person that kills mosquitoes and I'm better than them, then we're caught up in self-view. And we're really far from samaditi, which is the first limb. So even when we started, we started the whole thing with samaditi, right view. By the time we're working with right intention, we've cultivated so much wrong intention that we've lost our right view as well. All the limbs of the path work together in this way. But it's very important, of course, to realize the power of wrong thinking, how much it can destroy whatever right understanding we may have managed to develop. We can shatter it in one thought. Then we have to start all over again. But actually, every time we wake up in the morning, we have to start all over again. Every time we sit down to meditate, it's important to realize that I'm nothing here. This is the very first moment. The mind is not trustworthy. Until we realize Nibbana, until we realize at least stream entry, we're not safe from breaking the precepts and damaging ourselves further. But then at least we're assured not to be reborn in the hell realms or in any of the lower realms. I'm coming back to right intention. Now, there we are with our opinions, letting them go, whatever opinion it is. It's a good opinion, it's a bad opinion, it's not stable, it's not trustworthy. So just to begin again, letting go any wrong thought, because the right, the right opinion, that we think it's the right opinion, could be a very wrong opinion. And so opinions and judgments are not trustworthy. But the most trustworthy thing that we can rely on is being present, being fully present with ourselves, with our, our body-mind process, coming back to the present moment empty-handed. Coming to the present moment with no opinions, even thoughts, what a nice person, what a lovely person, that's good, but as, as soon as we're thinking, we're likely to start noticing some other feature <laughs> of that person <laughs> and, and get lost in wrong thought. But, oh, she's a relative of so-and-so and, and they did this to me and we're off again. So the most safe place to be is with the body, with our own 
experience that see where I am in this moment or where this being is abiding in this moment thoughts of of the Buddha thoughts of the Dhamma thoughts of the Sangha thoughts of well-wishing towards others may you be well may you be happy may you be free of suffering thoughts of mudita um, like someone else has just been hired for the job that you wanted this is a tricky one but we have it's very easy to have an opinion about that but if we are experienced about the power of right intention we can cultivate we let go but I deserve that job we let that thought go and bring up the thought of may that person be happy in their success may their success continue and may I get the next job <laughs> if possible <laughs> will someone please hire me <laughs> right intention is letting go even the tendency do you you remember hearing the instruction about following the breath from the beginning to the middle to the ending anybody hear this and some of us might get bored with that I think it's a bit too much detail well, I'm on my way to work now and I have to walk fast and I can't notice the lifting pushing and placing of my feet but we can be mindful just of left right left right left right but with intention see how valuable it is when you do have a chance to slow down and notice the root notice the origin of our suffering notice the beginning of the unwholesome thought if we can be that mindful then we can cut wrong intention at the root when we develop mindfulness in the beginning it's hard to go into the details of our bodily and mental experiences because it's all happening so fast the advantage of practicing mindfulness rehearsing life in the in the zendo or in the meditation home is quintessential to living a skillful life because it teaches us to stop and see how wild this mind is and how untrustworthy that's why some people ridicule we have lots of rules in this monastic tradition hundreds of rules and we accept them we commit to them as a whole package it's not like you can pick and choose this one is not relevant this is an anachronism now it's not not pertinent so let's drop this and just keep the ones that apply to modern life but in fact we don't pick and choose we just trust the whole thing and take it all out of respect to the Buddha so some of these rules seem really quite Victorian in, in the face of modern mores and things like for example as a nun if a man wants to shake my hand I'm not supposed to even touch men so in society shaking hands is considered a friendly greeting and sometimes it's more unsuitable and inappropriate not to shake a hand 
than to shake it. So then what happens? You're breaking your rule if you shake someone's hand. One of the reasons, especially for the, the rules around contact between the sexes, is that for celibates, there's an understanding that the mind is not trustworthy. So if there is contact, if one starts to allow contact, even the most innocent contact, then there may be a situation where the mind is so not restrained that that contact may cause some wrong intention to arise in the mind. So this vinaya, this virtue, this refined, to some people seemingly extremist, fanatic level of virtue, is a protection. It's a real protection. So think of cultivating the path with such mindfulness and such meticulousness that you look at the root of the origin of your thoughts. If we can slow down to see where they're coming from, then we can stop wrong intention at its source. What a gift that would be if we could cultivate to that extent. That brings us to sila, doesn't it? We've let go. We're learning to let go not just at the ending when you realize how bad it is and then you think, I'm going to renounce that. That has to be renounced. If you realize the wrong intention in the middle, that's great too. And even better is at the source when it's just, you're just noticing this this little Mara coming up in your mind, this little unwholesome creature called the ego arising and wanting to have its comeuppance in a situation which isn't going to be nice and you're going to regret it afterwards probably we renounce that we renounce that wrong intention we cultivate a thought of loving kindness then when we have something to say it's going to be we're going to be safe we're going to come from a good place. That's how we produce good karma in this world. We produce wholesome words and deeds. Whatever beauty there is in the mind, whatever wholesomeness we develop on the inside, it, it comes out as a blessing. And that's taking responsibility. Not just for our own well-being, then we're going to have a peaceful relationship with that person. No matter how awful it feels, whatever they may have said, what people say to us and do to us is their karma. We cannot control it. We can't even control someone pulling a gun and shooting us. But we can control our response to life. So right intention, properly cultivated, from the origin of that angry thought or that opinionated thought to the middle of it where it gets full-blown into wanting to say something because we, we must inform this person. And then we're going to suffer the vipaka or the result of what they say to us or how they respond. Right there is the birth of our karmic predicament day by day. 
the fruit of what we've done from the past and the work we've done on ourselves to date, up till today. We have a lot of lack of sobriety within us. Right there, by practicing with right intention, we renounce or we purify that old karma. We just clean it. It's like taking a scrub brush and cleaning the pot in the kitchen or boiling water to purify water. That's the importance of this process of purification. It starts right there. We purify the old karma and we produce wholesome good karma to support us and protect us for the next day and for all the days to come if we can continue to catch those thoughts those bubbling up thoughts right speech there are four kinds of right speech anybody remember what they are not to lie truthfulness so there's giving up lying even when you're so embarrassed all right then Sometimes it isn't necessary to say something, but if it's going to cause harm not to tell the truth, we really should speak up. If it's going to cause harm to tell the truth, then we have to be more wise. What is right speech? What is a lie, actually? If a lie saves a life, is it a lie? Truth is relative. To save a life, then that's a higher precept. Then, of course, there, how wise are we to make that decision? How judicious are we? We should be non-judgmental. We should try to be judicious in our decisions of when to speak, how to speak, what to speak. Our silence can also be a betrayal. You may say nothing, and that's wrong speech. That's an important thing to consider. Then, of course, there's coarse speech, like swearing or abusing people with your speech. Horrific. Very, very dangerous. Very violent. Words can be like grenades. You just pull the string and it blows up. And you cannot take it back. I'm sure you've all experienced that. And been either the perpetrator or on the receiving end and it I think I don't know which is more painful I always suffer very badly when I say something that I regret I can't seem to forgive myself it seems easier to forgive other people you know she didn't mean it or he didn't really want to or they didn't understand but when I I noticed when I say things that I know have been hurtful just the thinking mind, the wrong thought, thoughts of, of guilt, and there's another. This is a kind of wrong thought It's very important for us to drop like a hot coal, let it go. We have to forgive ourselves. We make mistakes. We're acting because we're not perfected beings. We haven't fully developed the awakened mind. Our bodhicitta is not complete so we're going to speak and act in ways that we regret but to have the understanding that was not wholesome and not to repeat it 
to the best of our ability and keep training the mind. That's, to me, to be able to act like that is heightened social responsibility. We are protecting ourselves and we're protecting everyone around us. And that includes, that right speech also includes not gossiping. So that's a very easy one. Sometimes, even in the monastery, we find ourselves talking about a certain nun or a certain someone who's, and it's for their own good, of course. <laughs> we figure out their predicament. And then they come in the room and then you feel like your face is turning another shade of, it's very embarrassing. It's better to sit down not when we're soul-searching or, or just trying to see through a, a situation in our hearts and we confide in someone and we, we're just looking for guidance of what's a skillful way. But just to sit over a cup of tea and discuss another person's problems, very easily you're veering into gossip. And that's so hurtful. It's so difficult when that person walks into the room to have right intention in your mind. Because you've been using wrong speech. So how the mind has been so impure for a few minutes, it's very difficult to reel it back and say, oh, good morning, sister, how are you today? <laughs> you know, and it's, you know, actually what you'd really like to say is, I'm really sorry that we've been talking about you. But you can't. It's so embarrassing. We get into these predicaments. We have to recognize our humanness and forgive ourselves and have compassion. Renunciation, the real renunciation is to be able to be present, purely present in this moment with one breath at a time, with the mind completely empty. That's the highest form of renunciation. And it's also, it's so many things, that in that moment we fulfill the whole path, not just right view, but also right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Livelihood in the sense of fully being present, fully conscious, fully alive with ourselves exactly as we are, not giving vent to any unwholesome inclination in the mind, in the heart. And that gives us the basis, the foundation for true right livelihood in our daily life. And then of course that is right effort, that is right mindfulness, that is right concentration. And we have the possibility in that moment for right release or liberation. It all begins with letting go, renun renouncing, renouncing all movement and stopping just to be present. Then we have to come back to the world with that stillness. So from that stillness we develop the four Brahma-viharas as well. Loving-kindness, compassion, Empathetic joy or sympathetic joy and equanimity is all conditions. 
I've been talking for quite a while. Maybe I should stop there and invite you to respond or to ask me to clarify anything. Um, some of the things you've said, I'm not sure, like if you're saying about yourself and your position, people who are committed to that religion or whatever it is, or just general, people in general, because there seems to me kind of, we have a certain nature of our beings, and a lot of it seems like to cut off that nature. Like I look at like monks who might be living in some monastery all their lives, and to me that's not really what we're built to do. What I'm describing tonight is not based on monastic practice only. Mm-hmm. It's very much something for everyone. I'm so used to my particular situation, which is very, very restricted, and it's just the most wonderful container for the for the body and the mind. I just see the effect that it has on my heart over the years. But what I can tell you is that when you're sitting behind the monastery walls, in the cloister, in that, you're still in the cave of your heart, and the whole world is in there with you. You don't leave the world outside the door. You bring it with you. You don't have the freedom to go out and act on your impulses. But you can be in hell with your impulses, with your thoughts, with your negativity, with your anger, with your memories, with your despair. The dark night will follow you right into the monastery. So there isn't a cutting off. Because you still have your body and your five senses and the desire mind. And you have no normal options to distract yourself. But in the world, there's so much distraction. We're constantly distracting ourselves from dealing with our inclinations, which may come from, originate from a completely untrained wild mind and lead us into a lot of unskillfulness that we're not aware of. So we act with not lack of awareness. Lack of awareness means lack of responsibility. And we can't cope with simple life situations that are overwhelming, like a, a relationship gone sour, or be, being made redundant, or unable to get a, along with your colleagues at work, or having to work for a company or a, an institution that doesn't support your your beliefs. You, you have another question. Oh, from you saying that, I, I, I just thought that it would be, isn't it easier to deal with that in a monastery than outside? Because you would have you so like many to try? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just urge you, come for one day. Just sit for... One day wouldn't do it. Oh, it would. You know, you'd, you'd be surprised if you came to the monastery and couldn't eat. Do you do retreats? No. If you weren't allowed, like we only eat in the morning, we don't eat in the afternoon. By nighttime, you might start getting hungry and think, where's the kitchen? I'm going. <laughs> okay, but what does being driving yourself? It's a very good question, excellent question. It's just a way for us to challenge ourselves to see how we are with difficult moments. 
I'll give you an example. I'm an alms mendicant, so I depend on people bringing food every day. I can't go shopping. I can't choose what I eat. I have to, except for certain restrictions based on my rule, I have to eat what people bring every day. Now, if somebody doesn't bring the meal as promised, then I'm left to watch my mind. And this has happened to me in the past, where somebody innocently was scheduled to come and forgot. I remember one particular incident where I was trying to think of all the different reasons why they weren't showing up. It's 11, they're supposed to come at 10, 30, 11. It's 11, 10, 11, 15. Oh, they're just probably just about to pull up. I can hear the car now. <laughs> Look out the window, no one. 11, 30, 20 to 12. By that time, even if they were to come and bring some food, by the time they'd unwrap it, be five minutes to 12, I wouldn't have time to eat. So that means I'd have to wait till the next day. Now, I'm 24-7 here. Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, the triple gem, that's it. And I love this teaching and this path with all my heart and all my soul. But that doesn't mean that I'm purified. So I watched my mind start to judge myself because I was feeling very, very nervous and hungry and a few minutes later somebody arrived and brought a plate of food and left it for me offered me the food and then went away I was on retreat so I, they weren't coming in and I wasn't chanting blessings it was all in silence I couldn't eat that food because it was after 12 because we're, we have to keep the rule it's strict so I watched my mind looking at the plate and thinking, well, just rationalizing all the reasons why I really deserve to eat this food and the Buddha didn't really want me to go hungry. And so many thoughts were going through my mind. But in fact, my rule meant a lot to me and I didn't think that I was going to compromise my rule for this meal. I think that my mind was more hungry to receive that person's attention or, or, or intention or interest than actually that I could endure that little bit of hunger for the sake of keeping my role. Now, if it were two days, three days, four days, we have a rule about famine conditions. <laughs> the whole structure of our precepts is not not to torture us, but it's just for us to experience enough challenge not to get everything you want, not to just immediately satisfy craving and desire in the moment, but to be able to hold the rule close to your heart and work with it in the best way you can. So the best that I could do at that moment was realize that I wasn't desperate I wasn't going to kill me to wait. And I, w I was completely taken aback when I saw that really what was happening was that it was more like the ego wanting that out of habit rather than really needing that meal. 
And of course, we are supposed to get the four requisites, food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. And that's the basis of our life. But I realized that this was a test of faith. So it's something you sign up for. You sign up for it. And you have your own reasons. But you learn about your mind and you learn what's really going on behind the suffering. And that's very important, not for the sake of starving yourself, but so then when you come to a moment where someone is angry at you or they're telling you something about yourself that you don't want to hear, instead of just reverting according to the habit in the mind, you have been training your mind over and over again to restrain and restrain and be present and empty the mind of all unskillfulness and be pure to begin with purity to come back to thoughts of harmlessness loving kindness, compassion and equanimity so then comes the test can I respond to that person from that place of peace can I respond to this situation well, no problem bless that person they tried and tomorrow there's another opportunity for generosity I learn more about myself by not eating the meal well, I'm not asking you to go hungry <laughs> I'm just suggesting that sometimes it takes a situation where you can't just act on your habits to learn what kind of habits your mind controls you with and how unskillful they are and we don't want to be controlled by our ignorance that's why we can't control our minds but except by being so mindful by being so aware that we can see the thought patterns and cut them at the root that's the way to end greed, hatred and delusion in this world and that's the way to make peace so that if somebody came in and said I'm going to shoot you Do you remember the story of those little girls in Pennsylvania in a schoolroom in the Amish community? Ten little girls. And five of them were killed. Five survived. This milkman, I don't know if you read this story several years ago. And I remember reading that one of those little girls who died said to him, shoot me first shoot me first how many of us could practice that level of compassion and equanimity in the face of a murderer such a purity at that age and somehow we become distracted from that disconnected from it look around at your world at your life at our world at our lives is it peaceful? Is it happy? There's a lot of misery in this world. So much suffering. People have a lot. They have riches, wealth. The stores are full of food. The shelves are stuffed with food from all over the world. You can get any kind of fruit in any season. How many people are on depression medication? How many divorces? How many children suffering from different attention deficit disorders? 
How many people smoke cigarettes? How much addiction is there? Not just to sub- substance abuse, food abuse, abuse of the body, anorexia, or so many conditions. I know I, I might look like one. <laughs> I used to be a nutritionist. <laughs> Talk about, for me as a former nutritionist, looking at this plate of food, there goes my protein. <laughs> <laughs> no calories. <laughs> it was such a terrific teaching. I blessed those people over and over again. The opportunity to let go is so liberating. I didn't need that plate of food to make me happy. But I realized that my faith was not based on getting what I want or what I think I need. But to be true to myself, I felt so peaceful. I had a good cry. They were tears of, I'm not good enough at first, but they turned into tears of joy. Just like that moment when I was training my mind back in Burma, 21 years ago with that nun that was slapping the mosquito. I caught the thought, the judgment. I caught it. So I'm not as definitely don't want you to go hungry. But just how can we train ourselves using the tools that this teaching offers us so that we can bring peace into our hearts and use it as a support for compassion, for forgiveness, of violence, of conflict, of unresolved relationships. This seems like a struggle between our animal nature, if you want, and and our other, whatever you call it, our idealistic nature. Yeah, true. And coming back to the truth of the power that each of us has to make this peace in our hearts. And then our social responsibility. It doesn't stop. It's not about staying in the monastery. That's why I'm here. That's why I I go to hospice. I want to reach out. It's not enough to just sit there. And the Buddha was the prime example of that. He perfected this human potential that we all have to realize the awakened mind. He perfected it. He's an example. And many of his disciples for more than two and a half millennia also perfected it. He then took his teaching out into the world for 40, 45 years, into his old age, taught tirelessly so that we could benefit for thousands of years. It's just a miracle how that teaching, turning of the wheel of Dharma, comes to us today. I'm just a microphone trying to echo that teaching. We, we have to bring the compassion back into the world to try to help suffering beings everywhere, not just relax in our own blissful, peaceful little abode. That's very selfish. So to really realize Buddhahood, the highest aspiration we can, the, the most compassionate, highest goodness, is to reach out unselfishly to cherish all other beings more than ourselves. I'm pushing 60 here. I can't even hold this mic steady. I'll probably put it on.
the conditions aren't perfect, but whatever, <laughs> doesn't matter, whatever energy I have in my body is for this. Did I answer your question? I didn't. <laughs> the core of this teaching is the Four Noble Truths and very often suffering leads us to spiritual interest suffering recognizing that where the origin of that suffering is is a very important step that's the second Noble Truth and as Helen Keller said in this world there's so much suffering and there's also so much overcoming of suffering we have to remember that that's the third noble truth there is so much we understand the origin of it and we also know there is a possibility to overcome it and then the Buddha gives a beautiful map a map of the journey how to do that and it works it does you can see all of us I'm sure have had our inner struggles outer struggles and which lead to inner struggle and um, those are very difficult to face it takes a lot of courage to come back from those dark years into uh, understanding the process and letting go and forgiving and putting down the burden of carrying all that many people never get to that point and begin to identify with the burden by seeing the suffering and not holding on to it, not letting it control you and blind you and overwhelm, you slowly chip away, chip away, and one day you feel it's light, it's light again. And that's, that's, um, that's the fruits of the path. That's the result of right intention. Monique when we talk about social action and right intention put together I'm thinking in regards to what you were talking about tonight it might be very difficult to be socially active and not judgmental having the right intention how do you achieve that impossibility? <laughs> I think the word judgmental is, is a tricky one there's a difference between judging and being judicious like being wisely reflecting or considering um, like we notice the results for example you might have political views if you're trying to protect the environment then definitely you would feel that if you're harming the environment then this is not a good thing to do well that's really scientific now isn't it people may have opinions about that but the state of the world speaks for itself some of us were up at Birkin Monastery a few days ago and for the first time I witnessed the devastation of the pine beetle on the forests of British Columbia and it was heartbreaking to see that and that's apparently partly due to global warming where does that come from? It may also be the natural course of overpopulation and greed and 
wrong industrial practices and so many other things, so many other factors at work. And then we have the result. Now, we can sit back and say, well, so be it. But a more socially responsible way to deal with that might be, how can we help to balance the the factors that contribute to this? Not to allow more harm. Not only, well, the beetles are overeating, for one thing, but there's wildlife that's losing its habitat, and the earth, of course, the carbon dioxide that is released as the trees die and decay, so that contributes to less quality of of air that we breathe and the whole balance of the the earth. But so we will we recognize a problem, and the problem is not we we don't sit in denial. No, there's no problem. That's not healthy. But to use skillful means and wholesome ways of organizing responses to those problems. So you wouldn't cause more harm by trying to oppress people into planting trees if they're not interested or ram it down their throats that they have to protect the forests or get socially active. That's the part that I find difficult. We feel passionate. We feel passionate. And we have to do the best we can in a skillful way and ourselves not get carried away. I think it's a bit like we don't want to compromise the end with the means, or the means with the end, I should say. If you're going to use unskillful action to realize a skillful end, then that's not the way to do it. If your end is unskillful, then, and you use skillful means to realize that that's also not right. We have to, to be wise about what we're doing, what's our intention, and what you, someone might say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right intention based on wise, wisely reflecting. So that's why it's very important to understand what is right intention. There are these prerequisites or these qualities that we, I discussed at the beginning of the talk, you know, that there should be a certain renunciation, that it shouldn't be coming from desire, from self-view or uh, self-interest. Thoughts of renunciation is right intention. Thoughts of goodwill is for the benefit of all beings. And there should be no harm that comes from this. Very, very important to satisfy certain criteria before we act. And then see the effect on the mind. Am I bringing more peace with my action, social action? If you justify your action because it's a social cause, environment, I'm in the Green Party, but then you you land last year opponents and use very unwholesome speech, that's not not skillful. It doesn't bring more peace. It doesn't lead to greater levels of trust. It doesn't promote healthy dialogue. There'll be more reactivity. Perhaps it'll produce more suffering. Have to think about the consequences from beginning to the middle to the end. So wisely reflecting mindfulness. Yes. Can you 
immune to from whom they worked in hospices. Now, I'm very new to learning about this. To me, it's incredibly complex and complicated. Oh, I'm so sorry. If, <laughs> if you realize, you know, like the second one, I think, one of these, I'm listening to you and thinking, oh my God, how am I thinking? What am I meant to do here? My question... Slowly, slowly, little by little. It right. takes okay. practice. But when you're working in a hospice environment, you're working primarily with families. And in Canada particularly, probably in the area where you're working, they come from traditional religion. Yes. Now, how do you blend with the families and the people who are dying in palliative care and hospices with your very complex Buddhist teaching? Excuse me for making the assumption that generally most everyone here was a Buddhist or a student of Buddhism. That was probably a wrong assumption. But in hospice work, I come from a completely secular standpoint, and I just present instructions about how to work with grief and pain and anger, frustration, pain of the body, pain of the heart, little by little by introducing meditation. And mostly I work with staff and volunteers, but I've worked directly with patients as well. And they, um, they keep inviting me back. So it, it hasn't been too complex, I think. But here I have presented a lot of the hardcore teaching, I guess you'd call it, and uh, it could have been just a very secular presentation. I'm, I'm not sure. I, can't, I haven't got time to give another talk. And <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you have many roles. I do, yeah. Um, I don't think peace is a... Is all these, most of this is all universal teaching. Some of the words I've used, forgive me, have been the Pali language. And you just had to signal me, I would have. Mostly about developing virtue and developing generosity of heart and being able to concentrate and stabilize the mind so that when, just from a few moments of sitting still, you can see how easy it is for us to be lost in thought. And we're not even sitting in the room. We're wandering somewhere in the past or busy planning the future and very difficult for us to be present. Inside this present moment is the beginning and ending of peace. Right here, just by being with ourselves and watching where the suffering begins, we are able to find a way to stop that suffering. We cannot stop the suffering on the outside until we've understood where it begins in us. And even then, only by bringing greater stillness into a situation where there's a lot of angst, heightened emotion, dire pain and physical suffering, and death, people facing death, there's so much fear, so much trauma, so much anxiety, so much despair. If we are able to be peaceful in those situations, that's a tremendous blessing for the people involved. And they can feel it. It's contagious. It really is. But until we experience it in ourselves, how can we expect 
to bring it to others. That's why with hospice workers, we do a course. You have to understand that for someone to work in hospice, there must be a lot of compassion there already. These are very mature people, spiritually very, very ripe human beings. For me, it's a great privilege to work with them. And um, they're, they're good meditators, too. They really take to this practice. I try to introduce uh, a range of techniques so it's not just... so everyone can find some bit of it that they can do, whether it's sitting meditation, standing meditation, walking meditation, or just uh, loving-kindness, spreading loving-kindness to ourselves and others. So when they walk into their patient's room or their client's room, they can just sit there quietly and practice this loving kindness and compassion, taking the suffering of that person in and giving out a joyful feeling or a peaceful feeling. That's powerful. That's a powerful practice. If everyone, if everyone here could do that, if we could all do that just in our own lives, think of how many hundreds of people we would touch with those loving thoughts. It's a tremendous force for goodness in this world. Yes? I was just going to say, like, with regard to um, what you were saying, universal teachings, when you were talking about Buddha, it sounded exactly like Jesus to me. Yeah. At the end result, this seems like, for me anyway, has more kind of intellectual things I can work with, but basically it's, it's all the same thing. Yeah. About positive and kind. It's, there's a, there's, there are more levels. There are many levels. There's a liberation teaching as well. And um, it's about individual responsibility. I think the focus is slightly different. But certainly, Christ had the gift of teaching loving kindness. I'm not talking about the churches and all that. If you go to the core teachings themselves, and I've meditated with Christian mystics, and I, we come out of the retreat together, and we're all talking the same language. We feel so connected. There was an interfaith conference at one community I lived in many years ago. Some of the nuns that came, we invited people from all faiths, and there was a group of poor clares, the poor clare nuns, the Catholic nuns, and they never leave their nunnery, never. They got this invitation from us, so they prayed over it. And they prayed, and then after the prayer, they all came to the same conclusion. They should come. And they came, and we sat together. It was the most wonderful experience to learn from each other, that we're all, in the silence of the heart, we're all speaking the same language. It's a language of of unconditional love unconditional so we don't hate the murderer even it's unconditional just this terrible terrible tragic day thank you for being here today for sharing your wisdom Um, I have a question around family (laughs) I'm just wondering at times what to do because some of my family behave in very unhelpful and damaging ways to themselves and to others. And I, I've tried interfering and that doesn't work. 
And I'm just wondering if you've got any thoughts about that, how to to work with that or there are four qualities uh, that I mentioned before which are uh, essential for the purification of the mind for this right intention to be developed and perfected uh, as I mentioned loving kindness compassion uh, sympathetic or empathetic joyfulness gladness of heart and equanimity my firm faith is in mothers that they have perfected three of them a really devoted and loving mother has the potential and very often I see mothers as the perfection of loving kindness compassion and gladness of heart for their children but the equanimity one is hard that's the hardest one I think when all that you've given all the sacrifice that you have made perfection of generosity too I must add that you have given physically suffered pain endured carried nursed nurtured nourished healed comforted supported stood behind upheld applauded your children all your life with no consolation or with whatever consolation you get and I remember the words of a nun that I have a lot of admiration for she's a Catholic nun St. Therese of Lisieux and she went through a very dark night and she was only 24 when she died of tuberculosis in her autobiography she had written about this and in some of her letters I've read that um, she came to a point where she no longer believed that there was even heaven that there was but she so loved Jesus that she loved him for the sake of love alone so she was willing to suffer in hell with no consolation just for the sake of that love she would love no matter what and then I took I take that to mean that God is love or perfected goodness within us that holiness that we carry is this unconditional this quality of unconditional love for the sake of that even if there's no consolation there's no reward but to love just to keep that quality alive in us has some it purifies us if we cannot help our family members they have their own karma we have to let go at a certain level to recognize each one of us carries our own predicament for whatever reason that we may not understand because of our undeveloped mind this part of us that doesn't know to that extent we're not omniscient we know so little but for some reason so many different predicaments in the world and our predicament was this how do we work with it it's for a mother it's a high calling to let go and develop that equanimity but when I read what St. Therese did Therese of Lisieux was able to accomplish in her life was to let go ending her own suffering 
just so that she could not diminish her love. This is a, it's a martyrdom. And it's, to me, it spoke to my heart. I don't know if it resonates with you. And if it does, that's all I can think of. And then one day, if in case they come back, where's mom? As they often do. You know the story of the prodigal son. He was favored. Because he had gone out and suffered and recognized where his true home was. Maybe one day they'll come back and you'll be there with that love extended. And that will be the greatest gift, not just to yourself, but to to them, to all the world. Still we're not perfect beings. But we're we're working with our we're working constantly to purify, to purify. If we work skillfully in these ways, then we can we can achieve great things. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Monasteries and retreats with the teachers to your practice alone, like hermitage. Oh, very interesting question. A, do you want to come back? Not a nice. It was the hardest thing I ever did, for sure. I did it at first to because I wanted to test my wings. You spend 10 years in a monastery and then you want a sabbatical. So I was invited to take a year sabbatical and then uh, it was so fruitful, uh, I just kept going. I found it so useful living as a nun on my own. But I had a big crowd in there. You don't leave. <laughs> you bring everyone with you, no matter where you are. And so I had to work all that out. All my, all the people I liked or didn't like, they were all there. And the loudest ones were the ones I didn't like. <laughs> but that was me. It's always my own projection of what I think they are. It's not real. It's just delusion. It's opinion. It's mental habits. It's the hatred that I have in my own heart, whether it's to myself or, or to something from the past that I was taught to feel and believe in and continue to support. And little by little, it just all starts to break up. And you see, the root of all my suffering is right here in me. All those opinions about, she's like that, he's like this, then you see it just, it all falls apart and you see the truth of what you're really doing. So it was invaluable for me. And I try to um, continue to do that. Even though I'm not alone anymore, then now that I come back to not being alone and I start thinking, oh, it was so nice. <laughs> but that's delusion. We're always in relationship with ourselves. And when we're with other people, that relationship with ourselves, the volume gets turned up to another level or it gets turned on its head so you start seeing parts of yourself like the blind spot in your rear view mirror of your car we have blind spots to have people around me is invaluable because 
I see where I'm caught. Especially when you're trying to start, to me it's a spiritual project, but it's still in the world. You still have to deal with the rent and the landlady and and shoveling the snow and taking care of the, the basic necessities, getting the food, listening to people when they come and they bring food but they really want to talk to you and you've only got certain amount of time to eat and they're talking <laughs> they got stuff to tell you they're, people bring their suffering it's very touching how to balance it all so whatever I learned I feel I was just being prepared I was didn't realize that I was just being trained to do something else and uh, it was invaluable I don't think I could be here today if I had not spent that time in community out of community and then coming back into community trying to develop community now and it's, uh, I'm constantly seeing bits that aren't also nice I'd like to chop them off but I have to, it's a gradual process to slowly slowly have patience for oneself and come with humility in front of each day like I don't know what will be but whatever it is to accept it with humility and and gratitude as a teaching even if things don't go the way you want that's the hardest teacher of all isn't it I think I'll stop there for tonight Thank you so much for your attention.